Lord, please open your word to us. Teach us how to trust as we live in a fallen world. Teach us how to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Friday, Mark preached on these verses because 1,973 days ago, he began a series on Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel. <laughs> I'm preaching on these verses today because about a year ago in Men's Chapel, I preached a series on three encounters with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And this year, I'll be preaching on three encounters with Jesus in Jerusalem. So what's the context uh, for these uh, verses? Well, after a long march, the Messiah and his army have arrived by the tens of thousands in Jerusalem. They've gathered up crowds and momentum as they approach the royal city. They've been talking about the kingdom along the way. And then Jesus rode into Jerusalem in triumph as the people received him as the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The moment has arrived. The king is about to expel the crooked stewards and claim his throne. Can you feel the thrill that runs through the gospel on this trip to Jerusalem? And so the disciples, now confident that Jesus was about to claim his royal throne and make the temple once again the center of the world, call his attention to its buildings. Mark records their reference in 13.1 to the massive stones, and Luke 21 speaks of adornment with beautiful stones and gifts. And at least some of these stones were the size of a bus. The temple was truly magnificent. The wonder of the temple, and now is the time. And Jesus replies, this great building, it won't be standing for long. It will be destroyed so entirely that the stones themselves will be dismantled. And I've read that Herod's temple was so thoroughly devastated that nobody really knows where it was. What? The disciples are dumbfounded by this. That's not the agenda they've been working toward. That's not true of the God that we follow, is it? Okay, we've been destroyed as a nation, but we thought you were going to make all things right. But now you're saying they're going to get worse? Well, nobody was expecting this. How does it fit into the coming of the new kingdom? What are the disciples meant to do with this, and what are we meant to do with this? Well, after a scene change, which locates Jesus on the Mount of Olives, the disciples have some questions. They want to know when the temple will be destroyed. And what about your coming and the end of the age? Well, what are the signs? What can you tell us about your revelation as this messianic conqueror? We thought this was it, that you were coming to Jerusalem, that this is your coming, that this is the end of the age, that you were ushering in the new age of the Messiah. Isn't that what you've been on about for these last few years? And it's not really a bad question, given the momentum of Matthew's gospel. And it isn't the last time they're going to ask this question. About two months later, the disciples will be back again with Jesus on the same Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1. And having been taught by Jesus explicitly about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us, and after hearing that Jesus' kingdom teaching, and having had at least a few weeks to process the crucifixion and the resurrection, they now ask one question. Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again with the kingdom, and again with the time. And again, it isn't a bad question. And Jesus replies, you know this, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set, but you will be my witnesses. And you know the rest. So when will this happen? 
Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 says a lot about when it won't happen. People will say, this is it, but they'll be lying. They'll be acting in my name and claiming a special anointing, so you should attend to them, but they'll be lying. That isn't the end. And long before the end of these uh, two chapters in Matthew, it becomes clear that Jesus' answer relates to the extraordinary destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and also a far-off horizon that calls for repeated exhortations to watch, to persevere, to not abandon the faith due to the grinding effects of life and the challenges of the delay. Well, so what are the signs? What can you tell us to help us recognize the coming kingdom? How will we know when the eschaton is just around the corner? The prior question to that, I guess, is, well, what are signs? Signs provide information, often with an implied therefore. Sometimes they simply tell you something which you may or may not need. There's a sign that says George Institute on this building. I've never needed that information. <laughs> I guess somebody does. Some signs tell you what to do. Form three lanes. Open joints on bridge. S some signs... <laughs> some signs tell you what not to do. Road closed. Therefore, I learned that one the hard way. <laughs> but Jesus' main point has, has been that this isn't the end of the age and the launch of the messianic rule as they expected it. So the first part of his two-chapter answer is to say that some things are not signs of his coming in power. In fact, deceivers will deceive by saying that these things are signs. They're not. They're just business as usual in our fallen world. And this lesson from Jesus has its own therefore. So this morning we'll see in verses 6 to 14 what are not signs of the kingdom as the disciples expected it. In these verses, Jesus speaks of the present and the future. He provides information, and much of it implies a therefore. In these verses, we'll see two things about the world and two things about the church. Point number one, verses 6 to 8 Jesus wants you to know that the cosmos is not on your side. The world is in chaos. The curse of Genesis 3 continues to define much of human experience. The world is full of suffering and death. It's such a negative picture. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, these things are not the end. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Um, it's a picture of suffering and death. It's such an extraordinary negative picture, but life is marked by such suffering. I was you know, um, looking at something, I don't remember what it was, um, following sort of a trail on YouTube, and it took me to a Jordan Peterson clip, and it's that one, you know, the one with the tears, where he talks about, if you don't know pain and suffering, you will. And he's right, isn't it? Isn't he? Uh, wars, but that's not the end. Kingdom against kingdom, but that's just normal. Uh, so I went to Wikipedia. Wikipedia has 18 pages discussion of wars. That's too many, so I narrowed down the scope to just civil wars. And then just civil wars since 1945. I counted 64 of them. In fact, under ongoing civil wars right now, 
They list 17 of them. Tragically, our chaotic world is a world at war. And it's a world of famines and earthquakes. We hardly need to be told that famines mean death. Most of us probably only know this from TV, but we've seen the pictures of despair. I probably think of earthquakes as not so immediately related to death, but the ancient world would have made the connection. Uh, do you remember the 2003 earthquake in Bam in Iran where 34,000 people died and as many as 200,000 people were hurt? And according to the World Health Organization, earthquakes killed 750,000 people between 1998 and 2017. 20 years. In that time, they affected more than 125 million people. Earthquakes accounted for more than half of all deaths from natural disasters. The cosmos is not on your side, and it deals death to all who join in the game. But secondly, verse 9, Jesus wants you to know that the nations are not on your side. His focus narrows from the cosmos down to all nations. If the world of chaos is against you, well, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Humanity as a whole is against you as well. Maybe the church hasn't felt this for some time, at least in the Anglo-American sphere, but things can change really fast. And we shouldn't be so provincial. More Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined, and it's estimated that 160,000 people die per year now for trusting in Jesus. I think this has always been part of my worldview. Uh, my dad was for many years on, the, uh, on Turkey's most wanted list for smuggling in Christian literature in the early 1960s. His life had been significantly impacted when, as a teenager, a young man who regularly preached at our church named Jim Elliott, along with one of the members of our church named Ed McCauley, were killed while trying to bring the gospel to a tribe in the jungle of Ecuador. There's a picture of Ed McCauley hanging on a wall of my church uh, to this day, a constant reminder that serving Christ can cost everything. But you know, that's all pretty theoretical for a child growing up in Milwaukee, and maybe for you as you prepare for ministry in beautiful Sydney. I bet though that for some here, the cost and even the threat of following Jesus is more concrete than it has ever been for me. Some of you have borne that cost with friends or at work. And I know that some of you have paid that price within your own families. And maybe some even know what it is to be opposed by your government. This is the nature of following Jesus for many of our brothers and sisters. It seems like these words would strip away any prosperity teaching. There's not much health and wealth left. But what do you do with your deeper thoughts? What do they tell you? For some of you, and maybe for most of you, you can reject the prosperity gospel and still live a prosperous life as a minister in Sydney. It's a good job with security. It almost certainly means a pretty decent house. It means your children can go to the best schools. Is that what you signed up for? Do you reject a health and wealth gospel but still expect health and wealth? Well, once again, Jesus tightens our focus a bit more. 
we know at least in theory that the world opposes Christ, but we'll always find a safe place as God's gathered people. So what will the church look like? What does the church look like? Point number three, Jesus wants you to know that even people in your church are not on your side. Verses 10 to 13, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So what will the church look like? What does the church look like as Jesus describes it in this age? Well, there's turning and betrayal and hatred and deception and there's coldness because of sin. Most. How confronting is that? Why does Christian faith die? It dies, according to what Jesus says here, because of infighting. So what hills are you prepared to die on? I hope the battles you choose are the right ones. Why does Christian faith die? It dies because false teachers who may look good and respectable are really wolves in sheep's clothing. And I suppose we're pretty good at spotting wolves in wolves' clothing, but are we equipped to spot people who are aligned with an, one who masquerades as an angel of light, especially when not all false prophets even know that they are false prophets? Why does Christian faith die? It dies because faith is tied to love and love wilts in the face of sin. This is true of love for God and for one another. The term for wickedness that Jesus uses in verse 12 is lawlessness. And maybe you live in an, in an environment where people pit love against law and even love against obedience. Jesus doesn't define love the way we do. You'd almost think, based on the rhetoric of our age, that love is on the increase. Jesus doesn't share that optimism. And the price of an insipid and distorted understanding of love is dying faith. So much of the New Testament is a call to persevere. How tragic when Christians come undone. Think it won't happen to you? Those of us who have been here a while know of many former students who are no longer Christians. We know some who've walked away from Christ, from families, from decency. We could name those who are today in prison. And of course, I'm talking about Christian ministers when I say that. How many in this room today? And how do you square that with a robust sense of election? We need to reject cheap slogans and teach the perseverance of the saints in line with Jesus' words. Jesus, in verse 38, uses a powerful image. He says, for in the days before the flood, many people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. People like humanity did back then, today continue eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. How sad when people are celebrating without knowing that death is just around the corner. But sadder still, I think, is when people are dying without knowing that a wedding celebration is just around the corner. Don't give up, don't give in, cling to Christ. If we're gonna die anyway, and we all are, let's do it as part of a life of faith. But salvation, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Salvation, this gloomy message isn't the whole story. It's all a prelude to salvation. Indeed, none of this makes any sense apart from salvation. 
uh, Jordan Peterson, as he promised pain and suffering, concluded that the only way to survive this, much less make sense of it, sense of it is to find purpose in it. I think there's great wisdom in what he says. But this verse isn't so much about us and our purpose. It's about salvation and God's purpose. That's the only thing that makes sense of following Jesus. Apart from this, we are, of all men, most miserable. The fourth thing Jesus wants you to know is that the gospel will advance. Suddenly, the camera zooms out again. The preaching is universal as a testimony to all nations. In verse 9, you'll be hated by all nations. The dividing line, therefore, isn't the borders of the nations. The dividing line is hatred versus faith within all nations. To whom? All nations. But testimony to what? The preaching of the gospel is the announcement to the world of what God has done in Christ and is continuing to do in order to recreate a world that is hostile to him. For some, the testimony will harden them in their hatred of God. For others, it will lead to salvation. So it isn't merely the chaos of the world that generates the hostility that we've been talking about. It isn't the natural order that causes the world to hate. It's the gospel itself. The Jesus of the gospel met with opposition and then death. How can we suppose it will be different for his followers? So what should we say in conclusion? Well, the first thing to say, and as a parent of children, this is something I find myself saying regularly, it isn't always about you. <laughs> but much of this actually is about you. You're being warned. You're being exhorted. You're being none too gently reminded that the gospel of the Lord Jesus is, first of all, unstoppable, even in the face of suffering, ignorance, betrayal, and hatred. And secondly, the thing that defines God's purposes in the gap between the cross and the resurrection is the progress of that gospel. Is your spiritual life dry? It may be that despite knowing all these truths, you still long for the very things Jesus has told you not to expect. So what exactly did you sign up for? And is all this too much? Well, what exactly did you sign up for? The gospel declares that there is a king and a kingdom, that a wedding celebration is in store for those who trust, and that the king we serve sits on the throne. To change the metaphor, uh, we've been looking at the long, drawn-out, excruciating birth pangs, the labor pains that precede the glorious coming of the Son of Man. And yet there is glory. So let's close by acknowledging that this sermon is incredibly unbalanced. Like all sermons, I've focused on verses that don't tell the whole story. If the call to persevere is important and threatening and in some ways harsh, we also rejoice in a God who has unconditionally chosen us despite our total depravity, who has irresistibly called us and who provides the warnings and the strength we need to persevere. May God be praised. May we serve him as we ought. May we encourage one another in the face of hostility and unbelief, not for our glory, but for his name's sake.